Look left. Look right. Yes, your inner place. Ever wondered what goes into making great places? Join Jeff and Matt as they speak to placemakers across the globe and have a chat about what goes into creating the workplaces, communities, hotels, restaurants, civic spaces, even cities that we all use on the daily. Welcome to the Places for People podcast. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and pay my respects to their leaders, past, present, and future. Hi, I'm Jeff. And I'm Matthew. And we're going to be speaking to strategists, creatives, and place and property professionals to find out what goes into planning, creating, and running some of the coolest places on the planet. Today, we have with us Melissa Neighbour. Melissa is an urban planner and sustainability specialist on a mission to activate regenerative places for urban living that enable the earth to flourish and for each individual human to live a rich, meaningful and spontaneous life. Welcome, Melissa. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, thank you so much for joining us. Look, each episode, we start by asking guests to paint a picture of their favorite places, either near or far. What place holds a personal spot in your heart? I love this question. So it's a little cliche, but it's my truth, right? It's the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Sydney Harbour. And the reason for that is when I was seven years old, we were living in New Zealand. We lived there for a couple of years because of my dad's work. We were planning to come to move back to Australia to Sydney and we had flights booked and we'd packed. And right at the last minute, my dad said, I've scored these tickets to a cruise ship. We're going to move to Sydney via a cruise ship. No, right. yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. Like moving countries at any age, you know, or when you're a kid is a pretty big deal, but via a cruise ship, it was pretty, pretty spectacular. The way that they design it is that cruise ships come into Sydney Harbour around 6am. So it's like really peaceful. There's no hustle and bustle of ferries or boats. You know, the, the water's reflecting the, you know, the city lights and there's a daybreak on the horizon. It's just like beautiful. There I was standing with my doll and my parents on the on the edge of the, the cruise ship, you know, looking out. And Sydney just from the moment we came in through the headlands just captured my heart. And we were coming in through it. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I was just watching this empire kind of unfold around me in my in my little mind. And then when we came into Sydney Harbour and I saw the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, like my seven-year-old heart just fell out of my chest. I was just like, this is spectacular. And I think it kind of sparked this reaction in me because it was also a place that was going to be my home. This was my future. This beautiful, magnificent place was where all of my life was going to unfold. And so it just captured me. And, and to this day, when I look at the Sydney Harbour Bridge, it has the same effect on me. It's exactly like that moment. And so for me, yeah, there's just nowhere else that beats that. Sounds like a movie. Yeah. It really does. It sounds like the start of a movie. What elements of that place make you feel this way? So was it the architecture? Was it the landscape? Oh, I think it's the, that incredible combination, yeah, of the architecture. The Sydney Harbour Bridge is awe-inspiring. The design is so elegant and beautiful. The Opera House is just a whole nother phenomenon altogether. And I think just the water and the, ex the expansiveness and then having the nature and headlands because, you know, Sydney has done a pretty good job over the years of keeping some of those headlands natural. And so I think that combination of the city and the excitement in the buildings and who knows what chaos I'm going to cause in the, in the yeah. middle of all of that, plus all of that natural beauty, just, yeah, 
yeah, it was all of that, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. The combination of natural and urban is pretty special and you yeah. don't get that in many places across the world. So true. So you've told us a little bit about your past, but tell us about what a young Melissa was interested in, how she grew up to be an innovator, getting involved specifically in you know sustainability and urban design. I wrote a little note here, were you an early version of like a Greta Thunberg? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did become a climate change activist. That was born out of having a really strong desire to create positive change in the world. And that is why I chose urban planning. And that really stemmed from a trip that I took to Southeast Asia when I was 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do after school. I didn't know that. I didn't even have all of that desire to make a difference in the world. I just kind of bumming around at home. And I had a call from a modeling agency that I had put my name down for years before, never got any work, completely forgot about it. And then they rang me and they're like, do you want to go to Hong Kong in two weeks? That like, they want to pay for you to go over. I'm like, who, what? <laughs> yeah, let's go. So I ended up doing that for a couple of years, traveling around. It was amazing. But for me, that was my first time overseas. So I'd grown up in Australia. All of our family holidays were in the outback or on Fraser Island. And so I'd never really been exposed to what the rest of the world is like. And that privileged life that I'd been living really hit home. And seeing that level of social inequality and environmental degradation, I was just like, on the one hand, I was being given free champagne and limousines and like, you know, living this high roller lifestyle, which was great. But on the other hand, I was seeing what was happening in the world. It kind of started to eat away at me. So that's where that motivation and still to this day lives inside me to, to kind of, I guess, resolve those problems or at least try and make a dent. And so, yeah, I came back, did a town planning degree. In our town planning degree, they were like, you've chosen the right profession if you want to make a change in the world. I'm like, yeah. So they pumped me up for four years. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm living my dream. I'm going to change the world. And then I got into the real world in town planning. I was like, oh, like hitting a brick wall. Like, what's this? They didn't tell us that town planning is so intertwined with politics. And so all of the good town planning theory that I'd been taught, I wasn't seeing it. And I really enjoyed town planning, hence why I've come back to it and I love it. But it was starting to break my heart and I was like, oh, this isn't a strong enough vehicle for change. So I quit and decided to become a climate change activist. I ended up co-founding like a small charity and we were working on the behalf of the Pacific Islands because of that moral injustice where they're on the front line of the impacts, but they're not really emitting anything compared to what we are. We fundraised to take 11 Pacific Islanders to the international negotiations back in 2009 and we gave them media skills and training so that they could tell their stories on the, of the world stage. We had to equip them like if they had, most of them had never been overseas before. We went to Copenhagen. It was like minus two degrees. We had to buy shoes and they just, but they still <laughs> wanted to wear their thongs. And I'm like, guys, you can't, it's freezing out there. Please put on the jackets, please put on, <laughs> you know, but it was, it was amazing. It was, and they got to see snow for the first time, but they also got to tell their stories. So we set up media stunts and media events for them to, to communicate what was happening. And many of their families were being impacted at the time that we were there from storm surges and sea level rise. It was pretty powerful. Christina Ora was selected to open the negotiations on behalf of the world youth. She was part of our delegation. And she said, you have been negotiating all of my life. You cannot tell me you need more time. So it was a pretty powerful message. But to your question about, you know, was I like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 
I had to give it up because for me, I started, this is um, a bit personal, but I started having nightmares. My nightmares were recurring, which was me screaming and screaming about what was happening to the planet and no one listening. And it was just really hard. And I was like, you know what? I need to put this torch down. And thankfully, Greta has come along and picked it up and many other amazing people are just doing the hard work and I really take my hat off to them because I know what it's like and it really is a thankless job, but somebody's got to do it. And look, I think it's starting to happen. Absolutely. You're seeing more and more. I mean, I can imagine how emotionally draining it is. Yeah. The more the climate change is on the media horizon, the more that you see it, Netflix documentaries and stuff. Like even my kids talk about it way, way more than it's ever been a conversation in the past. But I can see it affecting them too. Mm. I can only imagine being a part of that for such a long time would have a significant impact on you. Coming back to into the town planning world, so that must have been a conscious decision. And why did you go from... Now, obviously making such a big change to coming back to that as a profession. Yeah, I think I realized that that's where my heart lies and I really enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. I realized actually, while it may not be a fast vehicle for change, it still is a strong vehicle for change. And that's where I thought, well, why not put myself in that seat? I've been really lucky that I've been able to work on various sustainability projects and programs in real estate and property that have kind of ticked that box inside me where I feel like I'm starting to bridge the world of sustainability and property. It's nice to think, I guess, that you can still make a change. And yeah, obviously it's not as on the front line, but that's what you need is people that have got that passion and that enthusiasm to bring it into those spaces where it is maybe moving a bit slower. The term sustainability, a lot of people touch on sustainability. I think that's evolved over a number of years. In your mind, how can we be more sustainable when doing urban planning? And when you look at the amount of infrastructure that's happening, you know, in Sydney and in Australia currently, we've got the Olympics coming in Queensland. We've got a lot of major road infrastructure happening. I had an incident with my child where there's a major road being upgraded where I live and a number of trees were knocked down. So we're talking probably, you know, maybe a 10 kilometer stretch of trees that were knocked down. And he couldn't understand why, because at school they're being taught to regenerate and plant more trees and he couldn't understand why they had to knock down say a thousand trees to put a road through when there's already a road there yeah look the same questions run through my mind as your sons i i get it there is that balance that we need to strike right and a lot of the time we're not getting it right but i just want to touch on two terms that you said that will especially around like this concept of sustainability and how it evolves and where it's going And I think this is really important because this kind of is a key to how we can get it right. With sustainability, you know, that's more about reducing the harm that we're doing, trying to minimise the harm. But really what we need to be doing is moving towards restoring the harm or healing the harm that we've already done. So 75% of the world's environment has been degraded. We're not going to get there to a place where we're thriving and healthy as a planet and as people if we just maintain our status quo or, or reduce our missions. Like we need a radical transformation of how we operate and how we live. I really like the idea of rather than a building doing less harm and reducing emissions or becoming net zero carbon, actually giving back to the environment. So it's put to work 
to restore the environment that it's in, whether that's through green walls or, you know, recycled water or actually creating spaces for people to be in. I think that's the switch that needs to be made. And we're definitely not there yet. If you look at all of our regulations around commercial buildings being built, it's very much around reducing the harm as opposed to doing more good. So I think there's a long way to go, but that's the switch that needs to happen. I think that's the key. And that's the human effect, yeah? That's us. We need to make that change. Yeah, it's our mindset. Yeah. Everything starts off here. So you shared a quote with me from a guy called Baz Horsting, and it was ultimately the future of health is not a hospital, it's a healthy city. And I think that's a really interesting sentiment as it says there's a clear link between the health of people and the health of places. How true do you think that is as a statement? I love that quote. I think it makes sense that if our immediate environment is flourishing, then we will flourish. All of the right elements will be there for us to thrive. And I think those elements come down to things like nature. And I think it comes down to scale and how we design our places so that we actually create places where people want to be in. They want to be in environments that there's oxygen, there's fresh air, there's access to sky, they're feeling uplifted, they're, they're actually physically healthy, but the well-being aspect in terms of our minds and our emotions can be recharged from these spaces and places. I think there's definitely a link and research is showing that more and more, which is really exciting because it means the more research that comes in, the smarter we can get at how we actually strategically design these places to have that impact on our well-being. What are some of the examples of the actual things that you'd expect to see in a great place that makes it a healthy, great place that promotes well-being for people? I think the connectedness is fundamental to healthy places. And when I say connectedness, a place that enables the individual to connect to the place itself, but also to themselves. So designing it so there's places to linger or kind of make a little cozy spot for a couple of hours, that gives time for reflection within. But also if it's done at the right scale, it can enable connection with other people. So you might get spontaneous run-ins and, and people talking to each other naturally, or it can even be something even more subtle so that we know that facial recognition happens at about 50 to 70 meters away. At 25 meters, facial details can be understood and recognized. So even momentary glances between strangers can have an impact of connecting someone and making them feel less isolated. These little subtle things of how we can design places can have a big impact on our well-being. You know, in cities, social isolation is a chronic problem. So getting places right can actually start to heal some of those separations that are existing within our communities. It's very prevalent right now coming out of a pandemic. Who's doing it well, either here in Australia and or overseas? It'd be great to know who's actively taking the same mindset and implementing it well. Something else that makes a place healthy was the idea of community being involved in making that place. And, you know, this is nothing new. Community engagement is so important and having ownership over it. But it's really, it's people in the local community know what they want. They're the ones who are going to be using it. So it just makes so much sense to start to bridge that gap between people designing spaces that they're going to use. The planning system, it's so far removed. It's so, it's a long, lengthy process. There's so many, you know, hoops to get through. There's legal constraints, there's political constraints, there's monetary constraints. I find a way to get around that. And what we are seeing around the world and who's doing this well 
is tactical urbanism, which you've probably heard of before, right? Where it's like quick interventions that enable big impact. So for example, what they did it in my local community, actually. So shout out to my local council, Canada Bay. They did a shared streets program where they suggested a number of streets to close off part of it and put that out to the community and took a vote and worked out who wants what where, chose two streets, put up just barriers, you know, just plastic barriers, painted some of the ground, put up wheelbarrows filled with trees and like an outdoor chess set and just run a pilot program for four weeks and to see how it went. And it went really well. So they extended that pilot program. And then they took more feedback from the community and surveys and engagement and workshops. And now because it was a success, they're going to keep it there. But if it didn't work, if there was backlash, no problem. You know, you can just pull it back and replace it. So I think that's that's a really clever way of doing it. That's in my community. It's in Dremoyne. So I get to use those places with my son. In Stockholm, they started activating city blocks, calling it the one minute city. That was a headline that got thrown around a bit last year. But what was really cool is they they gave the community these Lego-like blocks of street furniture made out of wood. And they could design it and rearrange it how they wanted to. The participation on the streets went up 400%. So these little tiny things, that's what I I love the most. I think it's like little micro interventions which have big impacts and give the community some agency to create the space that they want. Yeah, it's very cool, isn't it? I think a lot of the time I see people sit back and wait for things to be given to them or to be done to them. They're really good examples of how people can get involved and are getting involved. On a more, I guess, grand scale, like, whose responsibility do you think it ultimately is in terms of making some of these bigger changes around climate, around community? I mean, is it the government? Is it council? Should the private sector be doing more? Is it down to individuals to just step in and do it themselves? Like, where does this kind of sit and who's going to be able to have the most impact at at scale? And just, I mean, further to that, should we allow our governments and our local councils to have so much power? I get it. We're all growing and, and moving at a fast pace. I don't think our local governments and councils are staying on that trend. How are you seeing it to add to that question? Yeah, okay. Some questions there. Look, I think we all have expectations. We have expectations of ourselves, of what government should be doing, of what corporates should be doing. Like in any scenario, some do it really well and some don't. And I think it's important that we don't get caught up in who's not doing it well. And also remember that while we can point the finger and blame. We also can take responsibility and I'm not saying that everyone needs to, but I think sometimes if you think creatively, there are ways around things that can make a difference and one person can make a difference. And one story really comes to mind here, a story of an environmental lawyer who lived in Mumbai. He lived near a beach called Vasova Beach. This beach was completely covered in rubbish. Like you can't walk, you could not walk on the beach. And he decided, God knows why, but he wanted to spend his afternoons after work with a garbage bag picking up that rubbish. This rubbish was four to five metres deep along kilometres of the beach. He just started picking with the garbage and every afternoon he went. I mean, pretty crazy. Like how is he ever going to make a dent in that, right? But I think he was probably just compelled, like what else am I, I've got nothing else that I want to be doing, you know. But what it did was encourage other people in the community to join him. So other people started picking up rubbish as well. 
And then more and more of the community came down and then they were having more and more garbage bags. So the council sent trucks to come and get rid of the rubbish that they were collecting. Over 120 weeks, so two and a half years, they cleaned up 5 million tonnes of rubbish. It was all gone. So it's pristine now to the point where at 127 weeks in, they had the return of sea turtles laying eggs on that beach. So it was transformed to that level. So it just goes to show that we all have the ability or the opportunity to do it. We don't know how things are going to evolve. Sometimes it's just, it's just taking that first step. Yeah, I love the momentum. Mm. That's the cool bit, right? Is like one person leads to a few more people that leads to more that led to the government. It takes that first little step and then it just builds from there. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. I just want to share one more good news story. So we we might have seen the headline recently that the wildlife across the globe is we've lost, what is it, 69% of wildlife since 1970. So we're heading what looks like towards another extinction, a mass extinction. Relatively, you could say that we're there. But the Australian government has seen this and has just pledged to put a whole lot of money behind ensuring or attempting to ensure that we'd have no more extinctions of native plant or species or plants or animal species in our country. So they're putting $224 million behind that pledge, which is a lot of money. So I think government can do things. They probably don't go as far as what we would like. Yeah. But, you know, baby steps in the right direction. That's how we're going to get there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sounds like a lot of money, $224 million, but when we give half a billion dollars to a country for not even giving them a, a submarine contract yeah. probably puts it in context that it's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So yeah. we, we as, a, as a country, we should be doing a lot more. And I think we can. Yeah. It is. It's difficult, isn't it? It's like, very difficult. Yeah. Uh, every step is a positive step. And I think, like you say, we should celebrate that because it is a good thing rather than it not happening. So, you know, it's, it's great to see that. And look, interestingly, I think like history has shown us that sometimes doing good for its own sake is not enough. What are some of the ways that companies can get benefits in the private sector from investing in, you know, good outcomes for the environment and communities? That link between doing good and the return on investment is getting stronger. Ultimately, it does require a lot of leadership because there is still risk involved and it's not the mainstream yet. So it is there. I think it's probably easier for larger companies to do it because they have more money up front to make that initial outlay that they can then get the return on investment. But, you know, in terms of creating public spaces and activating spaces around developments, that all has been shown to improve property prices and and, and value of homes, apartments, office buildings. So the link is there. It's just about organisations making the right choice. Yeah, and I guess it's it's early days to measure some of those impacts as well. So it's hard to stack up some of the return on investment, although there is obviously those signs there. We're so early on that journey. So I think there's got to be that balance of optimism and just doing the right thing for the sake of it, plus knowing that there's early signs that that investment's going to stack up for the future. Totally, totally. When I was working at LJ Hooker, I worked at their corporate level and I was based in their corporate sustainability program. That was an interesting task because we wanted to help the franchise owners do the right thing, but they're small businesses. 
So it's really hard for them to be able to, first of all, figure out what to do because they're just busy running a business. I have, I have a small business now. Like you don't have time to worry about the environment. You just got to get the job done. So we wanted to make it really easy for them. So we researched what the key pain points were or what the key costs were in their business. And I went out and sat with real estate agents, went through their profit and loss, looked around their offices, and it turns out it was power, petrol, and paper. And reducing those three things also reduces impact on environment. So it was going to help their bottom line and help the environment. And we had some really great success stories out there. And we used those to share through the network to encourage other franchise owners to get on board and just how easy it was. There are solutions there, but it's just about communicating it in the right way and showing that, yeah, what we do for the environment can actually benefit us too and drawing those links and taking that action. Yeah, it's funny. It's quite simple, really. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think, you know, going back to that thing about whose responsibility is this stuff, it's like it it doesn't need to be that complicated. There are those very simple links and they're beneficial for everybody. In your mind, you level up to this scale that saving the world becomes impossible. And it's not really about that. It's about what are those micro things that you can do. And you know, you've given us many, many examples of, of what there is that people can get involved in at a very small business level or at a personal level. Jeff and I have been lucky enough to, to learn about the metaverse recently. One of the really standout things for me was the level of investment money-wise going into a universe online. And what's triggered me during this conversation is even if 50% of that investment that was going to something online was going to our existing planet, we'd be in a totally different position. Does that infuriate you? Does that make you sad? It doesn't infuriate me because I'm pro-creation and you know what? We You just don't know how that could link back to help the planet. We don't know, right? So, And also, I don't want to say how people should spend their money, what they should spend it on. And, you know, I just think creativity in all forms. Yes, I wish we were in a better place with the environment so that it wasn't an either or, but, you know, we will be there eventually. And I think it's important to push out humanity to push on all fringes at one time because, yeah, you just don't know what they're going to discover there that may actually end up solving a lot of our problems. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, it definitely makes me feel a, a bit kind of like, crust. there's so much more we can do in our own, you know, the world that we occupy right now. And look, I'm really interested to find out more about your thoughts on places for people in the physical world at this point just to see whether there's any kind of trends or anything that you see going on in the world in terms of place creation that are beneficial for people occupying the spaces. I am seeing lots of exciting stuff and it's kind of where a lot of my attention is turning at the moment. I believe that a place can make you happy and I believe believe that a place can unleash your potential. Because what we're finding now, and the research is showing this, is that the environment that we're in triggers and activates different parts of our brain. You might not know this, but the creators of Disney World, they designed every single element of those theme parks to take people from a place of anxiety and fear to one of hope and joy. That's what they're designed to do. And it's pretty amazing because I like to think, what about if we designed our places in our cities like this? We could solve a lot of the, the urban stress that people feel. But even more than that, for me, what really excites me is if we design it right, not just making us well, but actually unleashing our potential. 
And I think a place has that ability to engage you and activate your mind. And I find that when we're engaged with a place, you actually lose touch of other parts of your brain and you kind of move into a more abstract place. So you become really connected to the moment. In that time, you're not doing anymore. Your, you know, your to-do list is gone. You move into a state of being. And in that state of being, you're, you're most creative, you're most fulfilled. That's really the, the optimal state for a human to be in. You're connected. And I think if we can design our places for that, the flow-on effect for how we are as as a species and, and being more connected to nature reminds us of our essential source. And if you connect with that, you have an innate desire to solve that, heal it, care for it. And I think that's a disconnection that we've lost in modern day society. So I think places can definitely unleash us and make us happier and activate those parts in our brain, which could just help to solve bigger problems potentially. Obviously, like connection to nature is one of those things that you know is an obvious one that makes you feel a certain way and helps connect you. What are some of the other things that, or other areas that kind of help create that flow state that you've you've spoken about? Yeah, so there's a new field that's come out called neuroaesthetics or neuroarchitecture, and all of that research is done on showing people different types of architecture, arches, windows, beautiful crafted buildings. They look at what the impact that has on the brain and how it lights up different parts of the brain and it lights up the prefrontal cortex, which actually starts to inspire us and, and you know, gets all of those aspects going in our mind where we become more creative and engaged and inspired. That field is, is emerging and I'm really excited to see where it goes. I'm so fascinated about it. I'm even thinking about doing a neuroscience degree. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. 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 I mean, it is, it is absolutely amazing, you know, taking that kind of field and applying it to architecture where, it, you know, it hasn't really been linked before. And you think of the difference that today's cities could go through compared to where we've been, you know, we've obviously been through a period where buildings have been put up a certain way primarily due to cost and you look at them and you're like oh geez <laughs> they definitely don't make me feel good that's for sure <laughs> I don't feel in a flow state looking at some of them so yeah there's obviously a big difference that can be made there like how prevalent is the is that field at the moment or is it just emerging it's just emerging yeah yeah I don't even think neuroaesthetics is in the dictionary yet <laughs> amazing <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm loving it. How do we utilize that and share or show or assist developers and landowners to to get on board with that? Yeah, I think it's about getting getting the word out there, right? And of course, showcasing spaces and places that do it really well. That's that's yeah. important. There are some developers who do kind of do this well already. Like for example, Mervac are really great at creating great spaces. It's so new. It's 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 definitely not mainstream yet. I wish it was. Um, but I think the benefits of creating great spaces are probably not as that well understood. Like we're still researching it. And so even just the benefits of walking are coming out. And when I say benefits of walking, you're probably thinking physical. No, it's on our mind. It activates different parts of our brain. We have two brains. We have like our default stage and our, and our active mind. 
And default is where you sort of, you know, you're automatically doing something like walking or, you know, when you go into pilot autopilot mode when you're driving and your active mind is where you're more creative. And so when you walk, you actually merge both together. There's all of these benefits that we're just starting to learn about now. And as they come out more that without a doubt, spaces are going to start to be designed accordingly. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I actually looked at something yesterday that was saying, more about the benefits of being in that autopilot state and not concentrating on doing things. Yes. And I think about my own kids and their their lives are filled with constant content. They're consuming stuff constantly and they never get that rest. They never get that part of their day where they're switching off from things because they've got their phone. It's, it's always there to be able to fill that time. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about the spaces that are not for doing anything and just being you know in that state where your brain is able to rest and reflect on what it has consumed throughout the day totally like I always think when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm working when I'm looking at the computer I'm engaged in work but when I come up with my best ideas it's usually when I've just looked out the window and I've just been daydreaming for a bit and then oh, I've got the answer for that. I don't problem solve when I'm looking at the computer. I do it out the window. And so it's the same for needing places to kind of allow us to do that. And I know what you mean about the kids because my son's the same. So I've banned any screens inside the car because I remember when I was a kid driving along, you know, you look out the window and you just, you know, you, you naturally daydream and you're forced to. And I think it's got a healthy place to be. Yeah, absolutely. Like you could have missed the Harbour Bridge completely yeah, if you, you had an iPhone instead of a teddy bear. I could never have fallen in love with this city. That's right. What a crime. Oh. I mean, with, with everything we've heard, how optimistic are you that our planet and its people have a way forward? I think I can sum up my response to that with a quote. So I'm part of a think tank called Future Crunch and we're science and technology communicators. And it's all about talking about stories of human progress. So it's called Future Crunch, but we don't talk about the future. We talk about all of the breakthroughs that are happening right now that we don't hear about in the media. I guess our keynote or our theme is intelligent optimism. And there's a quote by Francois Guizot, who was a French politician in the 1830s. And he said, the world belongs to optimists. Pessimists are only spectators. And I think that gives you an idea of, of yeah, my answer to that question. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Like that. yeah, really it is. It's very cool. And I think that's a great kind of summary of a lot of the things that we've spoken about. Optimism, ownership, and taking control for the future. We tend to finish on some final quick fire questions. I'll start with what's your opinion on the number one consideration for successful placemaking in the future? Oh, this is easy. Cars. Just get rid of cars. Get rid of a car yep. and you have a place immediately, okay? So if you think about during lockdown, I'm sure you can remember your street was quiet, right? And I know with mine, I would go out there, neighbours would be talking, neighbours I'd never even seen before. Kids were on bikes, people were playing cricket, people were just hanging out. All of a sudden there was a place created. When I was in 
Cochabamba, I did a sabbatical there, just did some volunteering and I wanted to learn Spanish, which never eventuated, (laughs) but it was still a great experience. And when I was there, the government four times a year closes the streets of the entire city on a Sunday, every street. You cannot get in your car on that Sunday. And the whole city was transformed. Like every street, there was like activities being done, cafes, pop-up cafes, horses were on the streets, bar, everyone's on their bikes. It was like a playground. And it was a, there was a real sense of liberation and freedom, just being able to step out anywhere and, and be safe mm-hmm. and not have in the back of your mind, I've got to walk out for cars. Like all of a sudden you just had all this place and space to play in. That's really, for me, the biggest thing is just get rid of cars. You'll see people walking more. We get all of those benefits in our brain. Nature can flourish and community can reconnect. I love that answer. I totally agree with you today after being late to this start, (laughs) as it took me an hour and 20 minutes to go 20 kilometers in a car. So more than happy to get rid of cars and do more walking and um, other ways of transport. Mm, absolutely yeah I, I mean I think you might have been later if you had to walk here but <laughs> I, got, I would have left earlier right and maybe I'd look yes, a bit better <laughs> that's right uh, yeah I could have walked off the donut that I had for breakfast instead what's the um, coolest thing you've seen in placemaking as you probably have worked out I like things that have minimal intervention and no fuss and can be implemented quickly but with maximum output So there's this creative group in Spain called Bomastira and they are a collective and they use graffiti and public art to create social change and impact. March last year, they did some research on Latino communities across the world and they found that basketball courts are like the anchor of the community. So people use them to come together and play basketball, but they also just use them for dancing or concert hall, like as a concert hall, you know, they put on shows that's really the heart of the community. And they said, you know, people go there, they, they fall in love. You know, this is the places where the magic happens in these communities. They wanted to instill pride in some of these communities and help people feel more connected. So this was during lockdown. And so they chose six basketball courts across Latino communities across the world. They painted them and it was called their union project. So each basketball court had one letter and they involved the community in it. And it was kind of like connecting these communities through invisible bonds, but showing that they're there. And so it looks absolutely beautiful. It's injected so much color, but it's brought together communities at a time when they were feeling really separated at a place that where their their hearts were, you know, that's key is this minimal intervention, but maximum output is really important because that's how we're going to get change. It's the low hanging fruit. And the more of that we see, the more we can build off. Again, like those kind of really simple ways of doing things and giving people pride in those places and ownership. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so powerful. So powerful. How can everyday people get more involved in creating places for people? Mm. Well, it's an interesting one. It's one of those ones where you've got to be motivated, right? So I think if somebody's intrinsically motivated to engage with their a place, they will think of ways to make it better. And I've mentioned a few suggestions today, but you know, you might get together with a few neighbors and decide to put up a community garden nearby or just take over some space and put up some street furniture and make it your own. Now, I'm not saying go and do anything illegal, but you know, you might even talk to your local council and be like, hey, there's this empty green space over here. Can we, we want to use it for this and that. And you might even get a little grant to help you. So I think you've just got to take the initiative. 
and be creative and opportunities are there waiting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've taken away so much from the conversation, so many amazing things happening all over the world, but also so many opportunities to just take control and do things at a local level, which I think is amazing. And it's definitely given me a much more positive and optimistic view of the future. So Melissa Neighbour, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's great. Thank you very much. The Places for People podcast is made for you by Creo and NPM. We believe if your people matter, your place does too. Check out how we can help with your place design and building needs at placesforpeople.com.au. Whether it's a brand new workplace for your team, a bar, restaurant, a retail renovation, or a million things in between, we've got you covered.